Well, I welcome you to our service today. Those who are here with me in our celebration service, uh, spent a moment with our summit crowd this morning, great crowd over there, those that are uh, worshiping with us online and on television. Uh, we're excited about today. I want to welcome you to our Easter Sunday morning service. Now, that may sound odd to you today, but let me tell you a story. Uh, we had a great, a great Easter celebration last week. So thankful. I've been so thankful to the Lord and to all those that worked so hard to make that uh, take place. It was a good day. But today is Easter too. Uh, have you ever wondered how those that were a part of the very first church, those who were in the New Testament church, how they would understand the way we do church and the way we live our Christian lives today. I think if those people could attend our service today, they would be startled. I think first of all, they'd be startled by all the technology. They couldn't even begin to comprehend. I think the music in both the celebration and the summit services would seem very, very odd to people in the first century. I think the elevators would freak them out. <laughs> but there's something else. I think they would be startled that we celebrate Easter every year. Because the first church didn't celebrate Easter every year. They celebrated Easter every week. In fact, the, the leaders of the, of the early Christian church, they all had a Jewish background, and they worshiped on Saturdays. They had worshiped all their life on Saturdays. Their parents worshiped on Saturdays. Their grandparents, their great-grandparents, all the way back, Saturday was the day. But when Jesus rose from the grave on Sunday, they said, this changes everything. You have to understand that Sunday was a work day. That was the beginning of the week. It would be like us changing our services from Sunday morning to Monday morning. That would be a great inconvenience. But that's exactly what they did. And they said, let's worship not on Saturday, but on Sunday, because we want to celebrate the resurrection of Christ every single week. Wouldn't it be something? if we did the same thing today. So I thought through what it would look like if we transitioned from an annual to a weekly Easter. Number one, kids. Listen, kids, if in your home with your family, if you receive an Easter basket or candy, you now have my permission to go to your parents and tell them that on the authority of God's word and the history of the church, that you now expect that every single week, all right? That's number one. But number two, every believer gathering for worship on Sunday morning with a joy and excitement like we had last week, with an enthusiasm just to celebrate that he is risen. That's what I want us to do today and every Sunday between now and next, next Easter. Now to continue that 
weekly celebration of Easter, uh, we're going to start a new series of messages today from the book of 2 Corinthians, if you want to turn there, New Testament book of 2 Corinthians. We're going to talk about resurrected living. Since Jesus has risen from the grave, how does that impact what does that mean for how we live our lives every single day? And so we'll answer the question beginning today, now how shall we live? Uh, we're going to be in this for 10 Sundays. So I'm going to give you a simple answer to the question today and then nine more Sundays uh, between now and the end of June. How now shall we live? Well, we're in 2 Samuel I want to, 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, uh, 2 Corinthians, and I want to begin reading in chapter 1, verse 3. Scripture says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. Now, even in this first verse, we see some important truths about God the Father. The first one may surprise you. We see here that while we know that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit are all God, one God, three persons, all are equal, God the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. We see here, as well as a number of other places in the New Testament, that the Son submitted in his earthly life to the Father. The Son submits to the Father. The Father is the God of the Son in that respect. In fact, we saw this last week. If you were a part of our, of our Easter sermon, we, we, we talked about Jesus being in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of the Olive Press, and praying a prayer where he said, Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me, but not as I will, but as you will. He was submitting to the Father, submitting to the Father. So we see that Christ submits to the Father for the purposes of salvation. And here's why that's important. Jesus submitted in his earthly life in every area that we have failed to submit. He was our substitute for obedience. Now, the second thing we see just briefly here in this introductory verse, it says that God is the father of mercies. Uh, here the word father really means originator, the source. All mercies come from the Lord. And then it says God is the God of all comfort. Now, we'll spend uh, much time today talking about comfort, but I want you to notice the word all there, A-L-L. -L. How much comfort God is the God of all comfort. Look at verse 4. He comforts us in all, there's that word again, in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. God comforts us, we take that comfort, and we can comfort others. Look at verse 5. For just as the sufferings of Christ overflow to us, so also through Christ our comfort overflows. Now you see the word suffering there in verse 5. That word refers primarily to painful sufferings, to misgivings, to 
uh, hardships, physical hardships in life. If you look back up to verse 4, we read a moment ago, the word affliction there, so it's suffering in verse 5, it's affliction in verse 4, that can also refer to a mental or an emotional suffering. It can refer to depression. It can refer to loneliness. It can refer to discouragement. And you're going to see that that's exactly the case here. Let's skip down to verse 8. We're going to come back and read some of these verses we've skipped in a moment. But verse 8 says, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, of our affliction that took place in Asia. We were completely overwhelmed beyond our strength so that we even despaired of life itself. Now, Paul gives a little personal testimony of some struggles. He says that he was afflicted, he was pressured, he was under great stress. That's how that word is used there. He said specifically that he was completely overwhelmed beyond his strength. Have you ever felt like that? Just the problems, the frustrations, the affliction is so great, it's beyond your strength, and you're just overwhelmed by the emotions. And then he says, it brought unbearable despair. See, Paul is saying to these, uh, to these Corinthians, these Christians in Corinth, they knew the details of whatever Paul had gone through. We, we don't know the details, but whatever this was that was so terrible, they knew the details. We know that because he, he, he says as much. You know what happened, but, but he says that there's more here. There's something greater than what you know. There was a mental anguish. There was an affliction that pressed on us such that we despaired of life. Have you ever lived inside verse 8, completely overwhelmed, beyond your strength, despairing of life? A lot of people know exactly what Paul is talking about. Now look at verse 9. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. That means we knew this was the end. We believed this was the end. So that we would not trust in ourselves, but we would trust in God who raises the dead. So if you're underlining in your Bible, underline that phrase, raises the dead. We'll come back to that. Now, what we're doing is we're learning about resurrection living. How do we live our lives now that we are confident, now that it is true that Jesus has risen from the dead? How does that impact us as Christ followers? What difference does the resurrection make in our daily lives? And so I'll give you one simple answer today, as I said, and nine more in the coming weeks. Here's the simple answer today. The resurrection brings comfort, the comfort of heaven, into our earthly lives. You got that? The resurrection of Jesus brings the comfort of heaven into our earthly lives. And I want to show you how. Let's look back at these verses. We're going to try to determine the theology of comfort. We want to discover the Bible definition for comfort, and we want to see how comfort works in our lives. So number one, we learn that true comfort comes only from the Lord. Only from the Lord. Look back at verse three. You want to keep your Bibles open 
to this passage today because we're going to go back and forth. Uh, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and what? The God of all comfort. So God is the God of all comfort. There is no true comfort that comes from any place, from any person, from any situation other than God. God is the God of all comfort. Now, why is that important? What does that mean? Well, any comfort, peace, or solace that you receive in times of affliction will ultimately come from the Lord or it will not come at all. Now, we can benefit from practical things, certainly. If you're struggling with your finances, perhaps you should sit down with someone who can help you get on a budget and pay off your debts. If, you, if you're struggling with, uh, with, with mental illness, uh, perhaps you need to go see a doctor who can uh, provide treatments that will uh, give you space and time to heal and for the fruit of the Spirit to take root in your lives. If you're having relationship problems, perhaps you should go see a counselor who can help bring uh, peace and, and, and remove the strife in the relationships. All those things are helpful. I'm thankful to God for all of those things. But we will not find true comfort in any of that because all good comfort, all true comfort, genuine comfort comes from God. God is the God of all comfort. And if we're settling for comfort that comes from the world, then we're settling for a poor substitute. Poor substitute. I wonder how many of you like fresh fruit. I've got a picture of fresh fruit uh, that I think I can show you on the screens. Uh, so this is a picture both of fresh fruit and of plastic fruit. I don't know which one you prefer. Fresh versus plastic. You know, the plastic fruit, just look at it. It looks 90% real. However, if you were to eat the plastic fruit, chew it up and swallow it, you would discover that while it may look 90% like real fruit, it is not 90% real fruit, right? It is a poor substitute for the real thing. The world, church, offers peace and comfort. And it may look from the outside 90% like the real thing. But the only comfort that will ultimately satisfy is the comfort that comes from the Lord. You see, there is a difference between having less dread in your life and having true peace, right? There's a difference between not being depressed and having joy in your life. There's a difference between having your mind distracted from the stresses and the anxieties of life and knowing the genuine peace of God when you lay your head on the pillow at night. There's a difference between setting aside the conflicts in your marriage and being in love with your spouse. You see, there is the comfort of the world that is a poor substitute for the comfort of God. God is the God of all comfort. If we spent as much energy chasing after the Lord, pursuing the Lord, 
as we spent searching for worldly comfort, all of our lives would be different. If we would trust the Lord's salve, if we would trust the Spirit's therapy, as much as we trust worldly wisdom, our entire lives would be different. God is the God of all comfort. Now, number two, God's comfort imparts strength for the journey. It imparts real strength for the journey. Now, look at verse four. We're going to see, as we read it again, that the word comfort here appears three times in this one verse. It says, he comforts us in all of our infliction, affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. Do you think that's an important word in this verse? It's used eight times in the verses that we read, three times in this verse. The Greek word for comfort is important because it'll sound like another word that you know, maybe a couple of words. The Greek word, the original word here, is parakolone, parakolone. Now that sounds like parable and paraclete. Do you know those words? You may have heard those words in church. It's okay if you don't know those words. But, but a parable is a story that comes alongside the truth to help illustrate the truth, to teach us the truth. Jesus would tell a parable in order to communicate some spiritual truth. It comes alongside the truth to illustrate it. Paraclete, that is the Greek word that is often used of the Holy Spirit when the Bible talks about the role of the Spirit as he comes alongside us to help us, to give us guidance, to encourage us, to strengthen us, he comes alongside us. So it's the same root here. This comfort is a coming alongside and strengthening. The comfort that comes from God is a comfort that strengthens us. It helps us. It supports us in the journey. Now, I think the best way to explain biblical comfort is to compare it to two similar words that you know that, uh, that have, a, they're similar, but they have a different meaning. The two similar words, sympathy and pity, sympathy and pity. Now, if someone gives you sympathy or pity, they are acknowledging that you're struggling, but they're not doing anything about it, right? I'm so sorry. Let's imagine that I post something on Facebook and it says this, a tree has fallen on my house right now and it has collapsed my roof. The rainstorm is destroying all of my furniture and all of my valuables and I can't get things pulled out of the rain because me and my wife have both broken both of our legs and we're stuck under the tree and all we can do is social media, okay. <laughs> now, I post that immediately, people would begin to respond. And what if these were the responses? Pastor, I'm so sorry. Somebody would say, good luck, stay dry, be careful. Now listen, that's pity. Maybe it's even sympathy, but it's not help, right? I, I don't care if you're sorry or not, come to my house 
and, 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 and do something that'll make a difference. The comfort, we see this in the very word, the comfort that comes from God is not pity or symphony, sympathy. The comfort that comes from God is a help, it's strength, it's guidance, it's support. We must learn to trust the Lord that he's going to help. We must learn to pray. We must learn to wait on the comfort of the Lord. Let me read a couple of verses just, just quickly. First uh, Peter 5, 6, and 7. I, I just really want to draw your attention to these. They say the same thing. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you at the proper time. Casting all your cares on him because he cares for you. Trust him. His comfort will make a difference. Psalm 55, 22, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. God's comfort makes a difference. Now let's go to number three. God's comfort is sufficient for your burden. It's sufficient, it's enough, it's effective. Now we will look at verse four again. He comforts us in all of our affliction. How much of our affliction? He comforts us in all of our affliction. Affliction, good night. So that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction. So regardless of your affliction, regardless of the severity of your affliction, Regardless of the kind, the category of your affliction, the Lord's comfort is enough. It is sufficient. It is effective. Now, I know it's one thing for me to say that or for the Bible to say that. It's another thing to trust in God's comfort when we're in the middle of affliction. But let me show you how, how this works. We can have confidence that the Lord's comfort is enough because of what we read in verse 9. So, pastor, you say that God's comfort is enough no matter what affliction I'm in. I don't know that I believe you. Prove it, pastor. Well, look, look again to verse 9. It says, indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. So they had come to the end of their ropes so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who does what? Raises the dead. That's the resurrection of Jesus. And what, what Paul is saying is, when, when it just seemed like there was no earthly way out, when it seemed like there was no human hope, we trusted in the God who raises people from the dead. That settles it. I heard a pastor tell a story, he told it like it was a true story. Uh, he was talking to uh, uh, a, a man he was sharing the gospel with. They were having lunch together and they, uh, they ended up discussing a question that maybe you've discussed before. Uh, the question was, if you could go back to any point in history and witness it, where would you go? And so the pastor gave an answer and I don't know, the parting of the Red Sea or something. And then the unsaved man gave his answer, the lost man, the unbeliever. He said, I would go back to the very first Easter. And the pastor was, uh, he was perplexed by that. And he said, well, that's, that's interesting. 
you don't believe in Jesus, uh, you don't believe in the Bible, you're not a Christian, why would you go back to the very first Easter? And the unbeliever said, if I could go back to that grave on that Sunday morning, if Jesus didn't come out of the grave, then I would know that all of this has been a sham. However, if Jesus comes out of that grave, that changes everything, right? And that unbeliever was, was right. See, what Paul said is that when he was in a time of despair, overwhelmed beyond his strength, great affliction, felt the sentence of death, he said, I trusted God because God is the God who can raise people from the dead. I'm trusting in the God. What does it mean to, to have resurrection living? It means that we live with a confidence that the God who raises the dead loves us and is committed to comforting us and seeing us safely home. Number four, God comforts so that you can comfort. Now let's look at six and seven. The Bible says, if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. That's odd, right? Paul says, if we're, if we're afflicted, if we're going through hard times, it's for your benefit, for your comfort, for your salvation. Now, how could that be? If I go through a hard time, how does that help you? He says, he answers the question, and he says, if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings that we suffer. And our hope for you is firm because we know that as you share in the sufferings, so you also will share in the comfort. God comforts us so that we can comfort other people. We go through hardships, we are comforted so that when others go through hardships, we can give to them the comfort that God has given to us. Now, there are two parts to this. Uh, there's a simple part and a profound part. Let me tell you both. The simple part, we go through afflictions, we lean on the Lord for comfort, and when that happens, we're being trained, we're being equipped. We're getting our PhD in comforting people who may go through other afflictions. When you go through a time of difficulty, understand that God is going to use that difficulty in your life for you to be a blessing in somebody else's life. Um, I was talking to Wendy Colgan uh, a couple of days ago and you may know that her husband, Charlie Colgan, uh, who uh, was pastor at First Christian Church here and a good friend, that he passed away last, uh, well, last Sunday, technically, really on Saturday. And uh, I'm going up to do the, the funeral. Uh, they live in North Carolina, Raleigh, North Carolina. Uh, but one of the times we were talking this week, uh, all Wendy wanted to talk about is Pastor can you help me and my kids take this difficulty and use it to bless the people in this church and this community? And I thought, that is exactly what 1 Corinthians 1 tells us, right? Our hardships 
can be somebody else's blessing. If we'll lean on the Lord for comfort, then we'll be able to give comfort. You know, some of you have been through some really hard times in life. Uh, some of you have been through infertility and the frustrations there. And you know things about that. You know things about that kind of broken heart that nobody else knows. Some of you have been through depression. Some of you have lost a spouse or a child or a parent or a friend. Some of you have been diagnosed with cancer, uh, with divorce. You've gone through divorce. Maybe you've dealt with rebellious children. Or maybe it's just been a generic suffering. That suffering qualifies you to then give the comfort of God to other people. We should be ambassadors of God's comfort. That's the simple part, and that's valuable. But let me tell you that there's a profound part of this too. And this may scare you. I apologize if it does. But sometimes God allows us to suffer greatly so that we can comfort greatly. This appears to be what happened in Paul's life. Uh, I'll read verse 10 again. It says, he has delivered us from such a terrible death. That's looking back. He has delivered us. And he will deliver us. So Paul got confidence from how God had delivered in the past as he looks to the future. He goes on in verse 10, we have put our hope in him that he will deliver us again. See, God may choose to show you the full measure of his strength and the full depth of his comfort. And the only way for that to happen is for you to go through a terrible affliction. How do you measure the strength of a rope? Do you know? If I had some rope and I want to see how strong it is, how do I measure that? Well, to measure the strength of the rope, you've got to put such tension on it. You've got to pull so hard that you pull within an ounce of its breaking and you prove its strength. How does God show the full measure of his comfort and grace and mercy? Well, sometimes God allows us to go through such great affliction that only in the midst of that can he show the full depth of his comfort and his peace. Does that make sense? That's what happened with the apostle, with the apostle Paul. Now, let's move on quickly. Number five, God often sends comfort through other believers. Now, this is the corollary to the previous one. So we've already seen, and it's clearly taught here, that God gives us comfort in affliction so that we can give comfort, God's comfort, to other people when they're afflicted. So what does that tell us? That tells us that if you need God's comfort, one of the ways, maybe the primary way that God wants to comfort you is through other people, right? Doesn't that make sense? Isn't that what it's saying? If it says that God comforts me so I can comfort others, that means that others need my comfort, God's comfort that comes through me. God sends his comfort through other believers. One of the ways that God wants to comfort you is through the ministry believers around you. But we have to put ourselves in a place where others can comfort us, right? Walk up and down the hallway of the church. How are you doing? Great. How are you doing? Great. 
How are you doing? Great. How are you doing? Great. There have never been so many people doing great at the same time in the history of the world. You're not doing great. And you're struggling with some things. I'm struggling with some things. God wants to comfort you and he wants to comfort me. But much of God's comfort, he wants to send it through you to me. But if you don't know where I'm struggling, you can't comfort me. And if the people around you don't know where you're struggling, they can't comfort you. You see, often when we say, I'm doing great, or I am fine, what we're really doing is separating ourselves from the comfort that God has for us, that he wants to send through, through other, other people. Here's my pastoral speculation. I believe that much of the frustration with affliction, the discouragement, the depression, the stress, the loneliness, and the anxiety that you feel is not due to the lack of God's comfort or the timing of God's comfort. It's because you've not been vulnerable enough to share your stresses with others and so God's comfort has been sent to you, but it has not been received by you. What if we get to heaven and we find out that much of the stress and anxiety that we suffered in this life was completely unnecessary because God had a community of people who had gone through their own sufferings and he was ready to help you through those people but you didn't allow it. I didn't allow it. So we see that God often sends comfort through other people. Number six, and this is closely connected, God's comfort is stimulated by the prayers of other people. By the prayers of other people. Now, I want to read verses 10 and 11. And we've read 10, but let's read it again and verse 11. Paul says, we have put our hope in him that he will deliver us again while you join in helping us. How? By your prayers. So how was Paul being helped? By the prayers of the Corinthians. He goes on to say, verse 11, then many will give thanks on our behalf for the gift, the gift of comfort, the gift of strength, the gift of wisdom, guidance, the gift that came to us through what? The prayers of many. Paul received help through the prayers of the people in the church of Corinth. God's gift of comfort that came at the most critical time when he was overwhelmed beyond his strength and despairing of life. He was comforted. Why? Because many people were praying for him. I get so frustrated as I read these uh, too smart for their own good preachers today that say that prayer doesn't change others, it just changes you. Well, those men need to read the Bible, okay? Here, Paul says that the only way he survived this was because God gave him comfort and that comfort from God was stimulated by the prayers of the people in Corinth. Now, let me give you both sides of this coin here. 
Number one, you need people praying specifically for you. When you struggle in life or marriage or emotional and mental uh, struggles, when you are fighting temptation, you need to have people praying for you. There is a comfort and a help that is only stimulated by the prayers of other people. There's a reason why God has given us the church, right? There is reason why God has put us in a faith community. You understand that Christianity could just be a solo sport. It could just be some personal thing that you did and and nobody else knew about it and it was just a private thing in your home. But no, Christianity is a corporate thing. We do it together. We live the Christian life together. The church is God's idea. And, And one of the reasons is that God has these gifts of comfort that he wants to pour into our lives to help us avoid temptation, to help us to have peace, to help us to have joy. God wants to give us this comfort, but God wants to do it as the response to the prayers of people around us. How many people are praying for you and for the specific struggles that you're going through? Now, if that number is small, that's your fault, right? Because we're in a whole bunch of people, we're around a whole bunch of people that like to pray. But if you don't tell them what your struggles are, they can't pray for your struggles. And again, you have separated yourself from much of God's comfort. So that's one side of the coin. You need people praying specifically for you. The other side of the same coin, people around you need your prayers in order for them to experience the full measure of God's comfort. If you, I'm gonna say this as plainly as I can, and it is 100% scriptural right here, If you are not praying for people in your life, they, no question, are not experiencing the fullest measure of God's comfort. Listen to that again. If you're not praying for people in your life, those people are not experiencing the full measure of God's comfort. Let me say it again, okay? If you're not praying for your husband, your wife, your kids, your friends, your coworkers, your pastor, then those people that you love and care for are not experiencing the full measure of God's comfort. Men, maybe, maybe you would have a better wife, a more godly and supportive partner if you'd pray for. Ladies, maybe you would have a better husband, a more godly and supportive husband, if you would pray for him. Parents, maybe we would have better kids, more godly, kids living pious lives. If we would pray for them, church, maybe you'd have a better pastor, a more godly pastor, if you would pray for him. There's no question in this passage that it teaches that there is a comfort from God that makes a difference. It gives strength to face temptation 
and peace to overcome affliction, but some of that comfort only comes when somebody prays for us. So let me give you a challenge. I send out uh, 20, give or take, but on average, 20 texts a week to completely random people. And uh, many of you have been a random person. If you, uh, if you hadn't gotten one of my texts, blame it on randomness, not me, please. But I send out, uh, usually on Mondays, 20 texts to random people, and I just simply ask, how can I pray for you? And then the next morning, in my devotion time, uh, I look and see what the replies are. And there are exceptions, but almost everybody, and some of these people, frankly, I don't know them from Adam. But almost without question, without exception, people text back about some great burden in their life I would have never known about. And I pray, I pray for every one of them. Um, I pray for more people than that, but I always pray for those requests. It takes a pretty good chunk out of my day on Tuesday. I've got plenty to do, but I love doing that because I believe, no, because the scripture says that when I pray for those people, that it stimulates some of God's comfort in their lives that they would not experience apart from me praying simple prayer for those people. So my challenge, you can do that. You can do that. You can, you can text five people this afternoon. Don't hound them. If people don't text me back with a prayer request, I just pray for them anyway. I'll show them. <laughs> but I don't text them three more times saying, come on, what are you doing? Yeah, that's fine. That's fine. So don't hound people. But people need you to pray. You need, you need them to pray. Listen, resurrection living, Jesus is resurrected. Resurrection living means we embrace every day this comfort, life-changing comfort that comes only from the Lord. So the main question, are you a resurrection man? Are you a resurrection woman or student or child? So we'll get to it in a few weeks when we get to 2 Corinthians 5. But there Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed and the, and the new has come. Just as Christ was resurrected, if we will trust what Christ has done for the forgiveness of our sins, that Christ lived a perfect life, submissive to the Father, and he died to pay the penalty for my sins, if we will trust that and surrender to the Lord. The Bible says we are then resurrection children, and we are new creations in Christ. And we can receive the comfort, the comfort that can only come from God. Head bowed, eyes closed. If you have never trusted Christ I pray that you'll step down here today in both services. There'll be people in the front and just, 
Just take someone's hand, one of these ministers, and say, today, I trust Jesus. I trust what Jesus has done. We'll help you from there. Father in heaven, I'm thankful that Jesus rose from the grave and that the God who raises the dead is the God of all comfort. I'm thankful for your love and your mercy. Thankful that you hear the prayers of your children. Thankful for your comfort. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. In both services, let's stand and sing.